Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we irradiate weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this historical edition, I speak with Adrian Fanulovich about the Australian Computer Museum Society and the 40th anniversary of the Apple Lisa Computer, Part 2. But first, here's news of energy breakthroughs that weren't. Nuclear fusion is just around the corner. Late last year, headlines around the world screamed that the elusive breakthrough in nuclear fusion power had been reached at last. More power came out of an experiment than went in. There was a lot of froth about clean green nuclear power because nuclear fusion doesn't require digging up toxic minerals like nuclear fission does and doesn't generate billions of tonnes of radioactive waste that's toxic for 230,000 years. Nuclear fusion is the process of forcing the nucleus of two atoms of heavy hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, together to make a new nucleus, releasing huge amounts of X-ray, gamma-ray and neutron energy as the binding energy of two nuclei becomes just the binding energy of one nucleus. The nuclear fusion experiment in the news was at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory run by the American Department of Defense. They're not engaging in power generation research there, but in weapons research. The experiment was devised to develop bigger and better hydrogen bombs. Hydrogen bombs are traditional nuclear weapons' big brother that makes Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like firecrackers. Putting that aside, didn't they generate more power than they produced, so isn't it still a newsworthy headline? giving hope that clever boffins could translate the weapons research somehow into power generation. The Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory used 192 gigantic lasers to hit a tiny tube of hydrogen encased in diamond. Two megajoules of energy went in, and three megajoules came out. An increase of one and a half times trumpeted the press release. The three megajoule output would be just enough to heat 100 cups of coffee or 33 cups if we're talking about the power above what went in. That's not nearly enough to power a single home. But it's still more, right? Even if not much more? Well, no. Because it took 300 megajoules to power up those 192 lasers to produce 3 megajoules of output. More simply, at the moment they require 100 times more energy to charge up the lasers than the energy they ended up producing from fusion. When it finally works, nuclear fusion isn't cheap. Deuterium for heavy water currently costs $13 per gram and is found in seawater. Radioactive tritium costs $30,000 per gram because it has a short half-life of 12 years before it transmutes into helium. If you irradiate lithium with high-energy neutrons in a nuclear fission breeder reactor, you can transmute some of it 
into tritium and helium. Lithium currently costs $76 a gram, which is currently being used to power the renewable energy revolution, and electric cars, and phones, and laptops, and almost everything. There's a limited amount in huge demand. In 1954, Lawrence Strauss, chairman of the Nuclear Energy Institute in America, said of uranium nuclear fission reactors, it will be limitless energy, too cheap to meter. When asked about nuclear fusion, he said nuclear fusion was a very long-range prospect, and I would accent the word very. The problem is that nuclear fusion is only 20 years away and has been for the last 70 years. Actual fusion power generators, once built, will leak radioactive tritium because the molecules are so small they just get through. Tritium forms water, so it gets into every part of the body and causes cancer. Tritium is a poisonous byproduct of nuclear fission reactors that gets dumped by the millions of litres. When you irradiate steel reactors for years, you get radioactive reactors, which you have to dispose of when you decommission the reactor. Fusion bombs are traditionally triggered by nuclear fission bombs, but it can go the other way. Fusion bombs can also release such high-energy neutrons that they cause fission in depleted uranium that would otherwise be spent fuel. So fusion reactors could breed new nuclear fission fuel from spent fuel and make more fuel for giant nuclear weapons and fuels of us all. Despite the great positive publicity for this recent US military nuclear weapons research, the best way for us to get limitless clean green energy is to keep improving solar power, which after all is a giant nuclear fusion reactor a long way away from us that needs no maintenance and is expected to provide power with no fuel costs or pollution for the next several billion years. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Australian Computer Museum Society is based in Croydon in the inner west of Sydney. They recently held a celebration for the 40th anniversary of the Apple Lisa computer, which, although it was officially called the Lisa, to stand for Locally Integrated Software Architecture Computer, Steve Jobs' biographer says that Jobs admitted to him that it was a backronym, so that Jobs could name the computer after his daughter Lisa without it being blatant. The Computer History Museum in California released the Apple Lisa's operating system source code to mark the 40th anniversary of its release. The Apple Lisa was the second widely released microcomputer with a mouse and graphical user interface, available to the public for only $10,000, two years after the Xerox Star was available for over $16,000. For comparison, the IBM PC, which was just a green screen, command line and keyboard computer, was just $1,500. Adrian Frunilovich is the president of the Australian Computer Museum Society. When he talks about the GUI, he's referring to the GUI, the graphical user interface, which is the mouse pointer, windows and icon system we all know so well. 
I visited him at the Australian Computer Museum Society collection and continued the conversation by asking him... Prior to your becoming the president of the Australian Computer Museum Society, you're a collector yourself. Yes, so I personally, once again, am a very big Apple, as many people call, fanboy. So I started collecting in 1996... So I went to a great little school in Sydney called Hurlston Agricultural High School. And not only had I already had a bit of background from primary school and with my dad's office, he worked for Rio Tinto, CRA, BHP, who had a lot of Macs pre-BHP. But my high school was absolutely packed with Macs. And the best thing was my computer teacher, um, Mr. Fliss, he saw that I had this absolute fascination with the Macs. And... He just completely said, go for broke. You take care of the labs. Within two years, I'd not only bought some of the old computers we were getting rid of. To My first collection was my Mac Plus that I bought from the school for $100 in 1996-97. By 97, I had keys to the computer lab. I was running the computer labs for the school. Um, many of the teachers were having me support their own home computers. And I just loved the Apple. It was having come, grown up with an IBM XT that my dad bought in 87. The XT was fun to an extent. If I've worked my way to get into Alley Cat or one of the many Sierra titles that I absolutely love. Um, you know, Ken and Roberta Williams had a real winner there with Sierra. Um, going to the Mac... It was just, it made sense to me. There was no G, like having a GUI, having the mouse, not having to do keyboard commands and remember what directories you were kind of working in and having this kind of three-dimensional kind of idea in your head of where you were, what you were doing. The Mac, you turned it on. The first thing that happens when you turn on a Mac is it smiles at you. Hmm. What, what other computer does that? So it was very, as a child, is very welcoming and once again no fear i just went for broke it's one of those things i think a lot of people today might not who haven't grown up with the really old computer systems that like in the 60s they were not interactive you would type in your or put in your cards your punch cards or whatever format of the program and then you would wait perhaps several days and then you would get a printout or more cards with the results, but you didn't actually sit in front of a computer and interact with it. It wasn't until, what was it, 1968, I think it is, 1968, 1969, the mother of all demos when at SRI they showed yeah. the mouse, the window, interactive computers, oh, yeah, yeah. video phone, everything we use in the modern world was in that one demo, yeah. which you can see on YouTube, and then even then it took a long time for that to get into the consumer world. Yeah, just like the Jetsons. Well, that's it. And then you <laughs> uh, just, but it took so long. Like you yes. eventually had, you had your IBM compatibles yes. and it was just a command line, as you were saying. And then it wasn't until the Lisa that the personal computer got a mouse and a graphical user interface. Yes. And then it was still decades before the networking that was shown in 1969 yes. was allowed to be on personal computers. It's just extraordinary that it was all available. It was all invented and it took a very long time to come into the public use. Yeah. So going back to what you were talking about. So uh, still now, if you have a, a, a computer, Windows, Mac, you open up your activity monitor or your task manager, it tells you how much CPU time each process has had. CPU time follows on from mainframe computers where you literally, we have a great member here, Ann Jones, she 
grew up in Adelaide and moved to the UK and became a computer operator, you would, like you said, you would punch your program onto cards and you could do that literally. There was typewriter type machines or hand punch cards and you punch in binary, machine code, whatever, either onto paper tape or cards, your program to get a result. So she was working for an engineering company over there and they would punch in the thing. They would then book time, processor time, CPU time at Manchester University. And because CPU time was so expensive, they could only afford to go down in the evening, like eight or nine o'clock at night when the computer was a cheaper rate because it was off peak. They would load all of their cards in they would run their program and they would wait for the computer to rumble and roll and then it would spit out a result on cards or tape, which they would then go back and interpret because that would tell them either the result they were looking for, which they would actually often manually have to calculate and work out if the result was in the realm of expectation that they had made a mistake, or it would spit out an error on more cards or tape and say error on, you know, column 600 of you know or you know 60 of card 400 or whatever it was because some of these programs are insane and then they would fix that they'd tape over the wrong hole that they punched they'd fix the one and make it a zero whatever it happened to be and they'd book more computer time computer time and cpu time was such a thing to an extent that our museum has one of only 18 ibm 1401s left known in the world our ibm 1401 has a timer interface on the side of it so not only does it actually have a key to start it to turn it on it actually has a minute an hour and day clock so that you could be billed so for instance ours is from university of sydney Besser computing unit a Besser computing unit if you were a company and i know that um one of our team here john webster was telling me basically you would go to the uni as a corporation or a business, you would hire out, say, two hours of computer time, and it was charged at an astronomical rate of money, which was cheap at the time, because it saved, like the computer could save you hundreds of man hours in time um, doing complex calculations, etc. So companies would hire out these computers, and yeah, and that's where computer time comes from in our even modern activity monitors and task managers. So there's relics of the earlier times just in everybody's screens. Absolutely littered all through our computing devices. Even the idea of a recycle bin or a waste basket or the trash can on Windows on the Mac, the desktop, the whole idea of desktop and folders. We copied what we knew from our physical offices and we replicated them on a computer to make us familiar with them. Did we have to do that? No, but it made it simple for people to sit down and go, I've never used a computer before. What do I do if I want to delete this document that I've made? I throw it into the waste paper basket. What do I do if I want to file it? I drag it into a folder. All of that kind of understanding and idea is straight back to the original days of the GUI. Just the idea of the desktop with the icons on it that you have folders and papers out on your desk, just like you would in your office. So if universities or, or collectors have old computers, particularly working old computers, but old computers that they might want to donate, how would that work? Yeah, so what they do is, 
So firstly, as I may have probably not mentioned, the Australian Computer Museum Society is a full NFP DGR charity um, in New South Wales and Australia. So what does that mean? So non-for-profit, so we're, we're not here to, to make a buck. We're DGR, which means we're a deductible gift recipient, which means if you actually donate equipment that you have owned that's in excess of $5,000 or a collection of equipment and you donate it to us and we accept that donation and it's valued by an independent valuer, you can actually get a deduction off your taxable income for the amount of the value of the donation. The non-for-profit means that we're... Any donation that the public gives us to support the charity in excess of $2 is tax deductible. So if you jump on and you give us a donation, that donation can be claimed back in your tax package and your in your tax at the end of financial year. The ACMS is a fully volunteer-run organisation. People can become members quite easily. You just go to acms.org.au, which is our website. You sign up as a member. The pricing is all listed on the site. Basically, you become a member, there's a joining fee and then a yearly fee, just like any social club, RSL, etc. You join up, you then become a member. We, we give a bunch of benefits for being a member. There's discounts at places like JCAR. You get access to workshops like we had today at the Lisa event where they're completely free. We have workshops most Saturdays now where you can come down and see and speak to other like-minded individuals, have a look at the collection, or help us. If you've got any technical expertise, come and help us restore our equipment for the greater good um, to let other people get involved and, and kind of exhibit and, and play with this stuff. So anyone can be involved. We, we don't really have any limitations. At the moment, the only kind of limitation we have is you have to be 18 or over, but we, we kind of ask anyone to be involved to come down. If you've got an interest, if you have a history with service supporting sales, we are trying to, at the moment, collect stories from Australians that have worked in all levels of industry, whether they were sales managers, whether they were CEOs, whether they were the service technicians. We're trying to collect information and, and to talk with people and document what the process was and, and, and the struggles that they had in business. We've done a couple of these interviews already and we've got a podcast. We've, we've also chatted to David Strong today, the original managing director of Apple Australia, who gave us a great overview of just how Apple Australia even became to exist. And last year we had Owen Hill, the owner of Applied Technology, which was Microbee. He came and gave a talk on the Microbee and how Microbee came to be. And so we love capturing these stories because a lot of the pioneers in Australia, they've either already are no longer with us or they're starting to get to an age that if we don't capture this information now, it's going to be lost forever. And what's the name of your podcast? So the ACMS's podcast is called AutoCode. It has been a little while since we last released one, but if, if anyone does want to give us a help a hand with the podcast, we are looking for people to help us right now. And the next podcast that we'll release is with David Strong. So you mentioned some of the events you've had recently. What's the next one you're in the planning stages for? Yeah, so we've got a couple of things on the boil at the moment and we're trying to work through. So uh, the next event that we hold will likely be potentially another Microbee event. The Microbee event last year, it was put together for the 40th birthday and it was a really successful event. We had a lot of Microbee enthusiasts here along with the original service team, the original development team, the original owner, the current owner of Microbee. So Microbee still exists, which is 
news to a lot of people. So we're looking at doing another micro B event. It was just so popular and then so many people missed out on it and they were basically kicking themselves they didn't get along. So I think we'll we'll do another micro B event and and we are just trying to kind of develop some new events. So if anyone out there has an idea for another event or what you'd like to see, please drop us a line jump onto the website, jump onto the forum, let us know what you want to see and we'll work with you and we'll work with the team to develop something. Is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? The only thing I'll brush back on is you asked me about my collection and I really kind of glazed over that. It's been a long day, but I am one of the largest Apple collectors globally. I have an insane amount of computers and I have to use the word insane because it's just so Steve Jobs, right? It's, it's My collection is insanely great. Um, <laughs> It's in excess of a thousand units of various things. It was originally focused around the Mac, but I kind of sold myself on the fact that I wouldn't touch the Apple IIs, threes, leases, etc. But a lot of that was because they were just impossible to get, especially in Australia. So I have spent a lot of time importing stuff from overseas. Um, and my thing that no one, I think, can come close to globally is there is always going to be someone that has more computers than me I'm not going to go I'm, it's not about quantity it's about quality so for me the one thing that I've done is I've got a very interesting cross-section of Apple stuff whether it be documentation the computers internal service notes all of the kind of peripheral advertising posters badges you name it Apple did everything but my big standing out point is the fact that not only do I pretty much have every example of every Apple computer made between 1978 and 2010, say, or even later, nearly all of them are in their original packaging. Now, that has taken a lot of time and a lot of effort to track down and a lot of air freight, which scares me to think how much I've spent. You need your own museum. So, yeah, so at the moment, when I came onto the board of the ACMS. It was what we'll call the new ACMS board in August 2020. We had our original president, Graham Phillipson, return, which was fantastic. And we had a new younger board come on that was very excited to do something. I was brought on because of my professional, like I own a couple of Apple service dealerships. I run several other um, businesses. I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. And as anyone that's worked with me, especially at the ACMS knows, I just keep going. I don't give up. So they needed someone like me to drive it. Um, working with Graham was fabulous, but it was cut short. Unfortunately, Graham had a tragic accident in January of 2021 and passed away shortly thereafter. And so I've then come into the president's role. And for us, it's about continuing the work that Graham set out to do in 1994 originally, which was about Australia and about getting and storing and restoring and keeping this equipment and actually telling people that they need a museum. They need to not lose this history um, because it's going to be pivotal to looking back in, you know, hundreds of years. So I just went, okay, well, if I'm going to give all this time to charity, what's better than opening one museum? Why don't I open two? So in 2020, I had a bit of an epiphany, and this is pre-COVID, so it's not one of those COVID ideas, but I just went, after 25 years of collecting, I went, what am I doing? My mum's house was full, my house was full, my garage was full, my grandmother's house had stuff in it. It was just everywhere. The office was packed to the gills. 
And I went, okay. And I've seen this from many collectors. You go, well, what am I going to do? So I didn't have a partner yelling at me to get rid of all of this junk, which was problem number you know, A. But I just went, okay, I have all this stuff. I didn't have time to enjoy it. I didn't have space to enjoy it. And no one else could enjoy it. And I went, why have I got literally hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Apple equipment and I never get to touch it, I never get to play with it, I barely know what I have. So I decided to take the next step and I bought a building in country New South Wales, just past Lithgow, an old school of arts building, and I have started building that out as a personal private museum. And then whilst I've been doing that, I've given the most of my time to the ACMS to build their museum because long-term, we want to see this museum in a much more public place that is much more accessible, where we can have a lot more guests, students, education days, and full-time staff working here helping us because we all believe that this is historically important that there is a lot to be learnt from this and that if we don't start capturing the stories and getting people interested now, it's going to cause problems long-term. If you don't know where you've been, how do you know where you're going type of thing? So it's very interesting to look back at some of this tech because you go, why did we not continue that? And a lot of the time it was because of money and the technology didn't support us going there. But if you look back now and you go, well, that was a brilliant idea, but you couldn't afford it and the technology wasn't there. The technology is there now. And with things like Raspberry Pi Picos and all these other things that you've got, Arduino boards, some of this stuff that, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago was just only a dream, you can now knock together for a couple of hundred bucks. So why shouldn't we be inspiring people to go back and look over some of these crazy ideas that we had in the past and continue them now or just use them for inspiration for completely different ideas that we'd never even thought of. Well, Adrian, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. Much appreciated. That was part two of my interview with Adrian Frenulovich, president of the Australian Computer Museum Society. Listen next week for a special artificial intelligence edition. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and... 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.